Good morning, everyone. Uh, Glad to see everybody this morning. I'll just add my welcome if you are visiting today. Glad to have you all with us. And uh, we're so glad uh, that you are here, especially if you're staying in Prague for a while. We hope to see you again. Uh, We're continuing this morning in our series on the life of David. And we're looking at 1st and 2nd Samuel in the Old Testament with the theme, The Lord Looks at the Heart. And as I say, each week we go back to that verse that says, God does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So again, if you take one thing away from this whole series this summer, I hope that you leave with that verse in your mind, that you remember that as you go through life, uh, that the way that you see the world and the way that you see things, don't assume that that's the way that God sees things or the way that you look and see that the world is working. Uh, Don't always assume that it's obvious how God is working in those situations. I hope that's what we're taking away from this, as well as looking at David as being someone who was a man after God's own heart and looking and seeing what that means for us. So uh, we're going to be looking at that one more time this morning, and then we're going to take a couple weeks off. Uh, We're going to be hearing from some of our elders over the next two Sundays, uh, Ken Eichmann next Sunday, and then Preston Pierce in two weeks, because we are at the halfway point in David's life. And in this series, we are crossing over from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel today. Uh, And it's been an eventful time from where we left off with David last week. So we're going to read our passage this morning, and then we're going to sort of hopscotch over the narrative. We're going to read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 19, and this is where David is bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. So let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks once again for today and for the gift of, of being together and worshiping you as your people. We thank you, Lord, that you have, have called us to be your people Uh, that you have revealed yourself to us through your Holy Spirit, through your word. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would speak to us once again. And God, we want to hear what you have to say to us today. So would you prepare our hearts and our minds? Uh, Lord, whatever your word is to us this morning, we want to hear that. And we want to take it with us uh, from this place as we go uh, back into our homes and our jobs and our lives this week. So God, would you be at work in us by your Holy Spirit, even now? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. David again brought together all of the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets and harps and lyres, timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf, and wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So like I said, uh, we're going to come back to that passage in just a few minutes, but just to fill out the narrative, I know all of you are reading First and Second Samuel as we go through this, and so you know exactly where we are and everything that's happened in the narrative, but just in case, for those of you who are visiting today, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening uh, in the narrative just so to catch you up so you know what's going on. Last week, we left David. Uh, he was in the cave with his mighty men, his band of mighty warriors, and he had just spared Saul's life. He had had the chance to take King Saul's life and opted not to. And so there was this sort of uh, this showdown, a little bit of a showdown where, where David goes out of the cave and he's yelling at Saul. And he said, look, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. I am not your enemy. And so this is one of the, the last few times that we see David and Saul sort of face off against each other. Since then, a lot has happened. And Saul, the first king of Israel, his life has continued to descend into more and more uh, desperation. His life it goes off the rails even more and more through the end of 1 Samuel until we have this one final battle with the Philistines. And in this battle, all of three, uh, Saul's three sons are killed, including Jonathan, David's very close and dear friend. And in response to seeing this happen or hearing about this happen, Saul ends up taking his own life. And it's, so this, it's this tragic end to this tragic life of the first king of Israel by Saul. And David gets word of this, that, that both Saul and Jonathan have died, and he mourns for both of them. I think it's easy to look at this tragedy of Saul's life, and we have been comparing Saul and David, because that's what 1 Samuel does, is sort of to play them off against each other. They're foils for each other. And I think it's really easy for us to look at Saul's life and to pass judgment on it, to look at Saul's life and to say, you know, Saul brought all of this on himself. If you look at all of the poor decisions that Saul has made throughout his life, then he really got what was coming to him. He should have known better. He was the first king of Israel. He had Samuel the prophet anoint him as king. He could interact with God through Samuel. If he had just made better decisions, if he had just decided to repent at some point through all of this, then maybe things would have ended differently for Saul. And all of that is true. All of that is true, and it would have been easy for David to gloat over Saul's death and to celebrate it, 
But this isn't what David does. David mourns for Saul, and he laments about it. He writes this this poem at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 1, and he says this about Saul and Jonathan and about how he feels about them. He says, Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How the mighty have fallen. And here in this, this lament that David has written, and there's more to it if you look at the beginning of first, I mean, Second Samuel, but if you look there, we see David's heart once again, that these were men that he loved. In spite of how things ended between him and Saul, these were men that he loved. And he knew that Saul had been God's anointed. This is something that he had talked about time and time again. And so for David, Saul's death was not a cause for rejoicing. It wasn't a cause for rejoicing for David. It wasn't for Israel. It wasn't even for God. But it was a cause for mourning. And so David responds appropriately here. This is something that's good for us to think about, that whenever we see uh, people, people who have been chosen by God, who have had powerful ministries for God, when they fall... Sometimes it's tempting for us to celebrate that or, or to find some sort of strange pleasure in that. And we don't want to do that. We want to mourn and lament when people who are in Christ, uh, when their lives go off the rails, when they fall in this way. This is not something that we celebrate. It's not a good thing for the kingdom of God. And so David's response is appropriate. And he mourns for a time for these two men that he loved. And then David gets on with being king the next king of Israel. But he's not quite there yet. It's not as if, as if Saul and Jonathan die and the rest of Saul's sons, and then they're just waiting to put the crown on David's head. He still has more work to do to consolidate all of his power. And so there's more fighting on uh, David's part. There are more battles to be fought. The people who were followers of Saul weren't necessarily lining up to get behind David right away. And Israel has become divided as a nation during this conflict between Saul and David. And when we read through First and Second Samuel, it often reminds me of one of those medieval epic stories, maybe like the Lord of the Rings or, or the show Game of Thrones, as if anybody's ever watched that. I don't recommend that you watch it, but it does remind me of that, right? It's filled with rivalries and with romances and, and alliances and betrayals, and there is a lot of violence throughout these books. First and second Samuel are not rated for general audiences. If you read through them, you will find that quickly. If you read it with your children, read it with discernment, parents, okay? But finally, we see that David has consolidated his power. Judah makes him their king first, and then the tribes of Israel, they do too, and they pledge allegiance to David with recognition that God has chosen him for this role, to be the king over all of Israel. And they say this, when the, when the chiefs of the tribes of Israel come to him, they say, the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. They know that David is the one that God has chosen and so they want to follow him at this point. And so now everybody's pledged allegiance to him. David is the king of Israel and Judah and David goes about setting up his capital in Jerusalem. That's going to be the seat of his power. I forget this sometimes, but Israel, uh, Jerusalem was not always in Israel's possession until David conquered it then. And this was a strategic move on his part. 
Jerusalem sat midway between Judah and Israel, so it doesn't show favoritism towards one or the other, the northern kingdom or the southern. It sits high up on a hill, which is better defensively if people come to attack. In the Bible, people are always going up to Jerusalem. Whenever you read about it, they're going up the hills to Jerusalem. When you read the Psalms of Ascent, the Israelites are going up. They're ascending to Jerusalem. And already there was a fortress there that the Jebusites had built. And so this is a great place strategically for David to set up his capital. But there's also spiritual significance to this place as well in Israel's imagination. This was the place where Abraham meets Melchizedek all the way back in Genesis. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, right? Jerusalem. And this is also where Abraham offers Isaac as a sacrifice to God and where God says, no, do not take his life. I will provide the sacrifice for you. And so Jerusalem would have been this place that loomed large in the imaginations of the Israelites, that this is a place where people had met with God already. So this is a good leadership decision here. David is showing his smarts as a king. David puts, uh, as one of my Old Testament professors said in his commentary, he says, David puts his cleverness to work on behalf of his faith and not his faith on behalf of his cleverness. I really liked that. In other words, David is using the brain that God gave him, all of the political abilities, all of the smarts to serve God's purposes, at least here at this point in his life. He's not trying to manipulate and use God to serve his own purposes. And at this point, there is peace. Finally, there is peace in the life of David. David could rest. That's what kings do once they've consolidated their power, once they've stopped fighting, once they have made their capitals, they rest. They can rest. And yet David doesn't do this quite yet because there's one more thing that he wants to do. And that's what brings us to our passage today from 2 Samuel chapter 6. If a king's role is to be a political and military leader, then David has achieved all that he has needed to do. He is in good shape at this point. But there is one more thing for David as the king of Israel that he wants to accomplish before he rests, something that's very important to him. This is something that he sees as being a vital part of his role as the king of God's people, which is to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. The ark, which we often call the ark of the covenant, here we call it the ark of God or the ark of the Lord, uh, all referring to the same thing. For a lot of us, well, let me ask this. How many of you fully understand what's going on with the ark of the covenant in scripture? Anyone? If you do, I'm happy for you to come up here and explain it to us. It is a confusing thing. I don't think we always know what is going on with the ark. I'm not sure that the Israelites fully knew what was going on with the ark. It was this mysterious object. It was almost mythical, which maybe had special powers that went along with it. Maybe it carried God's presence with it. Uh, for me, growing up in the United States in the 1980s, I can't help but picture Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Preston's nodding his head, okay? These great, well, great scenes, I don't know, but this, it, my mind goes there. And this is sort of the thing that we image sometimes. What is going on with the Ark? It seemed to have this great power. And I think the Israelites thought that as well. And when we look at the story that we read today, it might leave us with some questions about the ark. We have Uzzah. What is going on with Uzzah? It seems like maybe he was this innocent victim. He sees the ark about to fall. He stretches his hand out to steady it. 
And all of a sudden, he is struck down dead. And it's called an irreverent act. But it wasn't the ark itself that killed Uzzah. It wasn't some sort of magical totem. The ark itself didn't have this power as if it was cursed for anyone who touched it. It was God's anger and judgment for this act on Uzzah's part. And that is what struck him down. If you read the passage, we see the action was on God's part. Uzzah was not following the directions, the clear instructions that God had given for handling the ark, for carrying it from one place to another. And so it was the audacity, the the impropriety, the presumption on the part of these people who were taking the ark up to Jerusalem as if somehow they could do things however they wanted. And this is something that we've talked about in 1 and 2 Samuel already, that we see people taking matters into their own hands. And when people do that, they get in trouble with God. Uzzah and Ohio were not handling the ark the way that God had told them to do. And so there was this consequence. Harsh though it is, there was a consequence. And Uzzah received God's judgment for his disobedience. It's a reminder at this point in time to David and all of Israel of the seriousness of obedience to God. In this new moment, this new era, when David is becoming king, God's redemptive work is on full display right now because the man after God's own heart has become king of Israel. And so it's a reminder to them that they need to continue to uh, obey, Uh, that if they were to disobey, uh, that if they turn from God in their hearts again, as they have done in the past, that there will be consequences for it, and it won't go well for them. The peace and rest that Israel is experiencing right now, it's not a given that that will last forever. And so they need to remember to remain faithful to God. And we see in our passage that David gets upset with God about what has happened here. He says, how can the ark ever come to me? How can I ever do this thing that I want to do? God, I want to do this thing. This is a good thing that I'm trying to do. For you, for Israel, we want the ark to be in Jerusalem. Why would you do this? Couldn't you have just let this go, turned a blind eye to what happened here? And so David's plans go on hold for a while, and the ark stays in the house of Obed-Edom for a few months. And while it was there, the house of Obed-Edom was blessed. It said God blessed his household while he was there. Now all of this is to say that in looking at these stories, we can be tempted to think of the ark as being some sort of religious relic or religious totem that carried power in and of itself. If you have the ark, then you are going to be blessed and then you are going to have good luck in some way. But if you mishandle it, then all of a sudden bad things are going to happen. But it's not the object itself that was the source of the power. It was God. God alone is the one who judges. God is the one who blesses, not the ark. The ark was meant to be representative of God's relationship with Israel, his power and his presence among them. And I think so often as human beings, we want to look to objects or to other people to put our faith in them instead of God himself. We look to things like the ark. We look to things that we might have in our household, like little crosses or maybe a special room in our house. Or we may look to priests and pastors and say, this is where the power rests or this is where I relate to God through this person or through this object. And we forget that God has given us the one mediator that we need, who is Jesus Christ himself. And it's through him that we relate to God. 
I like what Eugene Peterson has to say about the ark. It helps me to understand it better. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read it. Some of it, uh, some of the highlights will come up on the slides behind me, but I think it really helped to understand what's going on with the ark. It says, the ark of the covenant was a rectangular box. It was not quite four feet in length. Sorry, I didn't translate to meters, but it was not quite four feet in length, a little over two feet in depth and width. Not very big. It was constructed of wood and plated with gold. And its lid of solid gold was the mercy seat. And two cherubim, angel-like figures at either end, framed the space around that mercy seat from which God's word was honored. The ark contained three items. The tablets of stone that Moses had delivered to the people from Sinai, a jar of manna from the wilderness years of wandering, and Aaron's rod that had budded in the time of the Exodus. And these objects were the continuing and reminding evidence that God worked among them. The ark did not have magical properties. When the Hebrews treated it, and the later the temple that way, as a source of power or good luck, the prophets did their best to confront them and face them with the reality of a personal God as over against an impersonal relic. The people were never taught that the ark was a source of power that they could plug into. The Hebrews were a historical people. They believed that God worked in their lives, did things. God wasn't a blurred glow of sentiment. God wasn't an abstract concept. God wasn't a remote legislator passing laws on on, uh, gravity and adultery. God wasn't a bearded judge, austere and exacting. God was personal in history, creating, directing, saving, and blessing. And God entered the affairs of men and women, and when he did, he judged and he saved. And he called to account and he blessed. And most of all, he loved. He entered into covenants with his people, giving them the dignity of sharing his work, living by faith and in love. And the ark kept all of this before them. That was its purpose, to hold up the evidence of the kind of God with whom they had to do. This wasn't a piece of memorabilia, but a display of what was going on and what was always going on, what was still going on, God's presence and action among them. The closest thing to it in Christian practice is the sacraments, material evidence of God's action in our common lives. God entering into the ordinariness, water, bread, and wine, of our lives and working his sanctifying and saving purposes right there. I think this is a really helpful description of the ark. It's meant to hold out before us God's presence and power in our lives. But the power doesn't rest in the ark itself. David knows that all he has accomplished up to this point is not his doing, but it is God's doing that he has come to Jerusalem, that he has united the kingdoms under him, that he has become king. And David knows that these are not his people that he is governing, but they are God's people. And so for David, bringing the ark into Jerusalem would place God at the center of Israel's national life. David knows that to be the king of Israel just isn't about consolidating power and securing borders, that the kings of Israel were to rule differently than that. Several weeks ago, we looked at the uh, book of Deuteronomy and the passage that talks about what the kings of Israel were supposed to do and be like. And he gives some very specific instructions about how they were to conduct themselves. They were not to have many wives. 
They were not to have excessive silver and gold. And they were to have a copy of God's law that they kept with them. And that they were to read it and to study it all of the days of their life. That they might learn to fear the Lord, their God, by keeping the law. That their hearts may not be lifted up above his brothers and sisters. The king of Israel was to be humble, to fear the Lord, to read God's law, and to keep God's commands. And by living faithfully this way, it was assumed that the king would influence all of the rest of Israel to do the same. It was sort of a trickle-down faithfulness, a top-to-bottom. If the king isn't living that way, why should anybody else live that way? At least if the king's living that way, then it sets an example for other people. This is what a faithful life should look like in some way. David knew that his main role as king was to lead the people in their worship of God, and so he acts like a priest as well as a king. And this was really important because so many of the actual priests in Israel weren't very good. They weren't doing a good job of leading the people in their worship of Israel, and they were using their positions to enrich themselves rather than to lead people in their worship of God. And we've seen this so many times already in First and Second Samuel, the way that the priests were doing things they shouldn't have done. And so for David to come and act like a faithful priest in this way was very important for the kingdom of Israel. This is what we see throughout this morning's passage, David leading all of Israel in their worship. He leads the procession that is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. He sacrifices. Every six steps, he's sacrificing another bull. It took them a while to get up to Jerusalem because of this, right? He blesses the people as they go. And he's even dressed like a priest in a linen ephod, not like a king. And he dances. He dances before the Lord with all of his might. This is part of David's worship. This is a joyful celebration that is happening here. This is worthy of music and of dancing. Every part of David is worshiping God at this point right now. He can't even withhold it in his body. And the point is that David recognizes his kingship over Israel isn't about him, but it is about God. There's no separation for him between his job as king and his personal devotion to God. God is involved in every detail of David's life. David's dealings with God, his relationship with God, his worship of God, they aren't reserved for particular times and occasions They weren't set aside just for big holidays or weekly worship gatherings. For David, God's presence was simply a part of life. God was with him. God is an active part of his day to day. And this, for David, is how life is meant to be lived, in communion with God at all times. David recognizes this for himself, but he wants it for all of Israel too. He wants all of God's people to be living this way. This type of life with God isn't meant simply for kings or queens or prophets and priests. This is what it means to be a part of the people of God. For all of our lives to be lived in the awareness of God's presence, whether it's our home life or our work life, our recreation, no matter what we do, we do it with faith and hope and obedience and love of God. David wants this for his people as much as he wants it for himself. And so he takes on the role of a priest as well as king, leading the people to worship. 
We may not all be as emotive as David. We may not all dance before the Lord with all of our might. We're all wired differently. Uh, A couple months ago when we had our big party, I'm going to tell a story about Phil if that's okay, but uh, Phil and Mastona and I were talking about the elements of the party, the thank you party we were going to have, and uh, Mastona really wanted to have dancing right? And she said, so many cultures love dancing. But Phil and I, coming from America and and England, are a little more, well, I don't know about dancing. (laughs) We're not sure. Uh, I come from a tradition that's known as the frozen chosen, right? We don't dance as part of our worship. Raising my hands to this level is a little bit of a stretch for me when I'm singing. We all, my point is this, we all relate to God in different ways. We are all wired differently, and that is okay. David was relating to God in this way, through music, through dancing, through singing, through writing poetry. We all don't do it that way, and that's okay, but God meets us where we are. What we see from the David story is that David, for David, God was real and God was present and God dealt with David in a personal way. God was not distant from him. And this is the way that all of us are meant to deal with God in this personal way, in this very real way. I love David because we do get to see the range of emotions. Even just in this story, we see David mourning and lamenting. We see David angry with God and expressing that anger. We see David dancing and rejoicing. All of that was offered in worship to God. And when you read the Psalms, we see how many of them are written by David. We find all of that in the Psalms. All of these things expressed before God. The full range of human experience and emotion. This is the way we are meant to live our lives, dealing with God in this way. So this is the kind of David, uh, relationship David had with God. It's the kind of relationship he wanted all of Israel to have with God. I wonder if God is as real to each one of us as he was to David. I wonder if God is as real to each one of us as he was to David. Friends, David, even as good of a king as he was, ultimately he was imperfect in his role, both as king and priest. And we are going to see that very clearly as we continue to go through his life story. The more and more he moves away from the rules that God lays down in Deuteronomy for Israel's kings, the more he gets into trouble. David doesn't remain humble. He doesn't take only one wife. He doesn't forego silver and gold. And so David's life starts to go off track as well. But even with his flaws, David points to the one who is coming after him. The one that God promises him will be on Israel's throne forever. This Jesus, who is both our king and priest. It is Jesus who rules on high in justice and humility as our heavenly king. And it's also him who leads us in our worship It's Jesus who sacrificed himself so that we may receive God's blessing. And it's Jesus who intercedes on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Jesus shows us what it looks like to live life in full awareness of God's presence. After you read 1 and 2 Samuel, it might be worth going and reading one of the Gospels and see how Jesus lived his life fully in God's presence He is the one who makes this kind of relationship with God possible for us because it's through him we know God is present and active in our lives even today. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit for this very purpose so that God's presence would always be with us. 
And we could leave it here with that word of encouragement of what Christ has done for us. But there's one more step that we should take. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter writes this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And in these words, Peter is drawing on God's words from the book of Exodus, that this was what God wanted for his people, what he was calling them to do and be throughout all of history, this royal priesthood, a royal priesthood that we see on display in David, but one that is meant for us as well. David's role as king and priest was to lead the people of Israel to worship God, to remind them of God's saving work on their behalf. In Christ, God has called us, his church, to be his people, to be a community of priests. Each of us who claim Jesus as Lord are a part of this royal priesthood so that we might remind each other in the world uh, and tell of God's saving work through Jesus Christ so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem so that all of Israel would be blessed by God's presence. And after all of the sacrifices and celebrations, we see that David blesses the people in the name of the Lord, and they each return to their own homes, and they take that blessing with them. And after Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he came back to a life and he appeared to his disciples, all of his followers. And the New Testament tells us that the risen Christ blessed his disciples and he sent them out into the world with that blessing to represent him and his gracious reign to the world. And that same blessing is passed down to the church, to us. And we are sent into the world with that same blessing Because we are meant to represent Christ to the world, together as the body, as the church. That's what Peter is talking about by calling us a royal priesthood. Like priests, we are called to intercede on behalf of the world, to pray for the needs that we see around us and we hear about. And we're also called to sacrifice. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. In other words, we should see all that we do in life as potentially an act of worship to God. We should offer all that we have before God as sacrifices of worship for the sake of his kingdom and the world. And Peter says, when we do this, when we live this way, we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we abstain from evil and do good, others may see our good deeds and glorify God. Friends, David brought the ark to Jerusalem so that the Israelites would be aware of God's presence and work among them so that they could be blessed by it. And our call is the same, to help make people aware of God's presence and work in their lives so that they can worship and praise him and be blessed by doing so. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, as so often happens, uh, we are left with a call that that is, is too big and too much for us to do on our own. But we thank you for the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, with us through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we might be your faithful witnesses, that we might take this call seriously, that as a church, we would be a royal priesthood. 
of people who are, are called to go out into this world and to represent you and your gracious reign. Lord, it's our great desire that all people would be called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And so whatever role we might have in that, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see where we might be faithful to you. Help us to see places where we might uh, offer our bodies as living sacrifices for the sake of this world. Always to point to Jesus Christ, our one true king and priest. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, before I uh, step down this morning, I just wanted to share a couple resources with you. I don't always do this, but if we could pull that last uh, slide up. Is there a slide uh, that has the Bible project on there? If you all are interested uh, in these things that we were talking about this morning, I would just point you to something called the Bible Project. They have a lot of great videos. Um, there are uh, ones for each book of the Bible, so look up First and Second Samuel. But there's also a whole theme called the Royal Priesthood Series, and there's five or six videos that talks about this very theme that we were talking about. This morning, I would commend them to you uh, to go and look, and, and they might just fill out a little bit more or say more clearly what I was saying this morning. So, uh, thank you. <laughs>